You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, lovely listeners of the Regent College Podcast. It's me, Octavio Fernandez y Mostajo. And Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today uh, we had a conversation with Jamar Tisby and Mary McCampbell and uh, around um, issues of racism uh, mm-hmm. and uh, race and uh, particularly what's happening in the United States, but also thinking more broadly about what it means to be followers of Jesus uh, mm-hmm. at a time where racial injustice is becoming more and more uh, part of our collective consciousness and our collective awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't heard of Jamar Tisby, he's an historian, an author and a speaker. And his book, The Colour of Compromise, was on the New, Lo- New York Times bestseller list this week and last week. So for the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Octavio and I were saying, we don't think we've ever chatted to a New York Times bestseller yeah. until today. He serves as the president of The Witness, which is a black Christian collective, and is currently writing his PhD dissertation at the University of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And then Mary McCampbell, you might have um, heard her name around Regent. She um, is an associate professor of humanities at Lee University in Tennessee, where she teaches courses on postmodern theory and fiction and film and philosophy and popular culture. So Mary has taught classes at Regent. Uh, she's spoken in chapel. And we had, mm. and, and um, Mary and Jamara are friends. So we had a great conversation with them. Yeah. I mean, it's those, it's those kind of conversations that get you a little bit uncomfortable. You know, I, I'm not white, but I'm still, when I listen to this, it's like, have I taken advantage of, you know, a minority, like black or in my case, indigenous? How, am I complicit? Complicit is the word? Do I have a part in this? Do I have to? How, how much do I have to repent? I was a minority too, so it's it's you know both ways. So and and you know this kind of conversation is like trying to you know uh, renew our imagination of how the world works. And yeah, it's 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 been great. So we hope you appreciate the conversation between Jamar and Mary and Octavio and I. Jamar and Mary, welcome to the Regent College Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a privilege. Glad to be here. It's an honor to have have you both both and recognizing that both of you have very full lives at the moment. So we appreciate you taking some time Mm -hmm. to talk to to us. Um, We're just going to start with a big kind of broad question. How, How would you define racism? Either of you can jump in on that. Jamar, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, In the book that I wrote, The Color of Compromise, uh, in the introduction, I give a very basic definition, but one that I think is helpful. And I borrow it from Beverly Daniel Tatum, who's a social psychologist. And she says, racism is a system of advantage based on race. Or Mm -hmm. another shorthand definition is prejudice plus power. I like both of those definitions because uh, the first one, a system of advantage based on race, talks about the systematic nature of racism. I'm sure we'll get into this in our conversation, but one of the key misunderstandings is that racism is primarily interpersonal and individual. Uh, This is especially Mm -hmm. an issue with white Christians and white evangelicals. Uh, So so the system of advantage based on race says that um, entire 
processes and policies and systems and institutions can act to uh, create and perpetuate racial inequality. The other definition, prejudice plus power, gets at that too. We can't really have a productive definition about race or racial justice unless we're talking about power. And so racism manifests, it, it hoards power among mm -hmm. a certain group of people based on race, and that can be economic, political, social, cultural kind of power. Um, and it's it's prejudicial. That's the that's the race based part. So it mm -hmm. doesn't distribute the the power equally. It it um, distributes it unequally along racial lines. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's systematic racism in many other countries, but some would say, yeah, there's racism, but there's not a systematic racism. So how do you know systemic? Yeah, or systemic, not systematic, <clears throat> systemic racism. And how do you know when? It, it's like what what are the, the 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 things that would let you know okay in this particular country you can see the evidence of of uh, systematic racism or can 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 there be racism in a country and not be systematic do you know you know what I'm asking yeah 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 uh, systemic racism manifests in a lot of different ways so there's both systemic and individual racism and so you know some person calling another person a racial epithet would be individual or interpersonal racism um, but it would manifest in systemic terms a lot of times when inequalities are disproportionately affecting black people and people of color. Uh, mm -hmm. If we take the United States as a context, if we look at the issue of mass incarceration, well, that's that's sweeping up a lot of different people. But mm -hmm. if you look at the rates of incarceration, uh, black people, Latino people, and the poor are disproportionately represented relative to their their uh, numbers in the population. Mm -hmm. uh, you can look at something, a very basic example is uh, sentencing for certain drug offenses. And so um, there used to be uh, sentences for cocaine in, in two different forms, crack cocaine, the rock form, which was cheaper to manufacture, mm -hmm. and many more poor people, many more black people used that kind of drug. But the powder cocaine, which was the same exact substance, just in a different form, but it was a little bit more expensive and used more by white people. And yet the sentencing for crack cocaine was far, far higher than for powder cocaine. And that that disparity then puts a lot of black people and poorer mm -hmm. people into the system. And what's what's so insidious about it is you don't have to have some bureaucrat who hates black people pulling the levers. All you have to do is let that policy work the way it was set up to do, mm -hmm. and then it creates and perpetuates this this mm -hmm. um, racial inequality. Okay, yeah. Mary, do you want Can to I say? Just, mm. Yeah, I was just going to say um, in relationship to that, that um, so growing up white in America, you know, uh, it wasn't for a long, I didn't learn until, you know, out of college as an adult realize how white Americans are, are socialized with racist tendencies because of the systems that they, you know, I mean, the country was built for white people, mm -hmm. but it was yeah. built of course on the backs of black and native people are even, you know, killing many native American people. Um, and so that the system itself, even from the beginning and that when we've, benefited off of it and the thing is is that uh 
I feel like a lot of systemic racism and just even personal, like microaggressions and racism are invisible to white people right. because we're so used to things feeling normality to, it, it tends to be whiteness, you know, yeah. just because it was built that way. But I have to say that I did learn something I would think about when Jamar's talking about prejudice plus power, which is the, you know, usually the quick hand definition I would give. But I didn't, I learned that when I was in college and it was interesting. It was like on a young life retreat <laughs> of all things. Right. And it was like in a, in an urban, in part of Memphis that it was trying to teach students, teach, teach college students about this. And I remember a guy, I don't know his name, a white guy coming in and saying, you know, there's no such thing as reverse racism, mm. which is something that we often hear like that's reverse racism when a white person, it right. often happens when a white person points out racism racism then they're then then they're then they say oh the black person who said that's a racist which is doesn't make mm -hmm. but it doesn't make no. sense that racism does reverse racism you can have anybody can be prejudiced right but that reverse racism so i don't know that was pretty life-changing to me and mm -hmm. then when um you know understanding about socialization and realizing because um, many white americans are very defensive yeah. if you bring up anything to do with race um and there's a whole story of like trauma and all these kinds of interesting things you can talk about. But I think part of it is they feel like you're looking at them and saying, you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a racist when it's, well, it's kind of like, I've heard Michelle Higgins say it's, it's in the air we breathe. Yeah. You know, it's just how like we have to unlearn a whole lot and mm -hmm. then learn a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know, sometimes the phrasing seems a little bit aggressive in the sense of, of, of uh, you know, white people. Uh, are you white? Yeah, that means you're taking advantage of, of black people just because you're white. And some people, because I, 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 I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it from, from the outside, right? And sometimes it feels like just the fact that you're white, it means you are already taking advantage of me. I don't know. I mean, you would have to tell me if it's that true or not. I think in general, we need to really interrogate the framing as we have these conversations about race. So I think a lot of times the, the conversation gets derailed uh, into sort of endless arguments yes. um, when you center the feelings of white people instead of the impact of a racist system and a racist mm -hmm. society and the impact specifically that it has on people of color and black people yeah. specifically. So um, to say it sounds harsh, I, absolutely, I can understand that. And the reason why it sounds harsh is because, like Mary said, for, for, for most white people, um, white supremacy and racism is invisible. It's, um, mm -hmm. it's in the air we breathe and so, the way things are seems normal, seems standard, seems appropriate. And then when you point out, hey, it might be working for you, but it's not working for me because that's new for you. It's going to sound accusatory. It's going to sound judgmental. It's going to sound mm -hmm. harsh. But if that's the focus of the conversation, I think we've missed it because the real point is the way the system is set up, the way our society functions or dysfunctions is hurting people of color and black people. And that's who needs to be at the center of the conversation. So mm -hmm. I understand this may be difficult for, for folks to hear. Um, everyone's on a journey. We, we may be on different points in that journey. But at the end of the day, what we have to do in these conversations is focus on the impact that it's having on people who have been historically marginalized and oppressed and let that lead the conversation. Mm -hmm. Let that dictate the terms and, and let 
honestly let white people sit in that discomfort mm -hmm. um, because because that's what's necessary to move forward. Mm -hmm. oh, I like that. Octavio, you're getting at is something I've just been learning a lot more about recently um, is white fragility. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which I never really fully understand. But it's such a great phrase. It's yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> but it but it, you know, I, I've learned it. Well, one way I've learned it is there's a big um, drama going in in my small town around a Confederate monument. And we had a African-American student start a petition um, to get it removed. And the hate you heard about it. I talked about it in chapel, but yeah. the hate she's received mm -hmm. death threats. She's mm -hmm. 19 years old. Mm -hmm. And these are from 50, 60, 70 mm -hmm. year old. So hateful. And just, you know, you're an outsider, go back home. Who are you? What do you know? And it's just really, really sad. Um, but the thing is, there are a lot of people, a lot of friends, I'm so glad professors and students from our university that are, and then others in the town that are out standing up, representing, you know, standing for the black community. And then it happens nightly. And then on the other side where the monument is are all the pro the neo-Confederate folks. Mm -hmm. um, and the hate they spew and the harassment um, and the thing is, I know one black woman said, you know, and in, in online harassment and not believing and making up false narratives. So many lies have been right. said about people protesting. And this one black woman said, friend of mine, she said, now you're getting a tiny taste of what it's like to be black mm. or just a tiny taste <clears throat> that every day it's. I'm being misunderstood. I'm being lied about. I'm not being trusted. There is a deep aggression towards me. There's a deep distrust. And the thing is, I'm just thinking growing up, it made me really think the black community, like how strong you have to be to deal with that every day of your life yeah. and how white people we're so used to in America, we're so used to it just never dealing with that unless yeah. we align ourselves with someone who's black mm -hmm. and then we mm -hmm. start to get a tiny taste yeah. and I'm like, no wonder we're fragile, right. you know, any little thing, any little thing, you know, and I, I just started this anti-racism group to help uh, online to help educate white people. And we've seen a lot, we've seen, you know, now that I'm kind of, I've seen it and I'm like, wow, I've done mm -hmm. that before. Mm -hmm. So it's not even like a, I try not to be judgmental or angry. I'm like, oh, well, I, it makes sense. If you've never had somebody point out mm -hmm. that what mm -hmm. you're doing, even if you have a good intention, what you're doing is hurtful. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's, yeah. And so we're fragile. Aspect, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think another aspect um, to build off what Mary has been saying is when you find out that it's not about you. <laughs> right. So when you live in a society <laughs> that literally is catered around about your you. sensibilities and your cultural norms and standards, and you see this in everything from who wins in, in the Oscars to who owns sports teams to the, the language that is considered acceptable in professional settings, all of that is, is catered around uh, the majority racial group. And then you're confronted with conversations that say it's not not it's not all about you and and it, you know when you hear this conversation immediately and it's partly just human nature not just even race but you immediately think well what about me what what is this saying about who i am my intentions mm -hmm. you can't call me a bad person and it's like you know what 
honestly, that does, none of that matters. It's not about like, that. It's, it's not, not about, about you. that at all. <laughs> it's about whatever your intentions, whatever you thought was true. Here's a reality that I'm telling you is true. And that's what you need to wrestle with and taking the focus off of yourself, which is just hard in terms of human nature, right? Because we're, yeah. we're, we're bent inward. Um, but especially when you add on top of that a racial ideology that, that makes the comfort and success of white people um, the, the norm and the standard, then it gets really tricky to say, okay, pull the attention off of yourself for a moment, get uncomfortable, and look at it from a different perspective. So I think all of that's wrapped up in this concept of pr- yeah. fragility. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. Um, the, in terms of the, kind of the other thing that you sort of – the other sort of, sort of terminology that, I, that, that you're sort of hearing at the moment is this kind of the white guilt kind of side of stuff. So you either um, – so again, but it, is that just – it's just making it all about white people again. It's like is it, is it that or, or that kind of patronising that kind of um, – that is, that is possible as well? Can you talk to us a little bit about, about white guilt and that kind of concept as well? Go for it, Mary. <laughs> okay. Well, I feel like white guilt isn't helpful at all. I mean, I don't know. Jamar, tell me if you think. I, 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 but, I, well, I feel I often hear, I, I tend to hear the term white guilt when it's people who say, well, I didn't own slaves and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a racist. And it's not about feeling guilty it's about recognizing that you've benefited off a particular system it's about again it's about interrogating like you know what have you learned and how do you unlearn it Mm -hmm. and I think when the focus is on white guilt yeah it centers white feelings and I I often hear it's yeah there is I I feel like a lot of this is a lack of education of people not understanding what these terms really mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same as white privilege. There are many people and they get very defensive, but they don't understand what that means. Yeah, agree. Um, that, yeah. So I'll, uh, just a little story as a good friend of mine, um, just, you know, has a, another, she was just telling me of a story of a friend of hers who was really angry about, you know, the white guilt said, I'm, you know, I grew up poor, you know, or not, sorry, white privilege. And she, he was like, I, got, I grew up poor and I'm not, you know, I didn't have privilege. Um, but then when an Af- actually an African-American friend of his restated that and said, well, what about a black disadvantage? And he said, oh, I totally yeah, I get that. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. It was like he was so focused on, you know, how dare you say that I'm privileged when white privilege is just a baseline. Yeah. You know, it's not about you haven't had a hard life and you haven't experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but white guilt, I don't know. I find that a problematic phrase and I don't think it's very helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Jamar? Yeah, Jamar, yeah. So oftentimes when you hear that phrase, white guilt, it's people lamenting uh, all this focus on race. And they're basically saying, well, all you're trying to do is make me feel bad for being white. Yeah, um, that's that's the idea that I hear a lot of times. Um, I like to reframe this concept of white guilt in terms of godly grief. And so in Second Corinthians 7, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about some shortcomings in the church, and he has to be honest with them about where they've fallen short. 
And he writes with with tears and a burden because he knows there's a potential if the church rejects what he's saying that it will uh, compromise their relationship, that, that, that they'll no longer speak to him or trust him or, or follow his pastoral leading. And so he's praying that they would accept it. And then they get the letter and they read it and they say, you know what, you're right, we need to change. He rejoices and he calls it um, a godly grief that leads to repentance as opposed mm. to a worldly grief that doesn't. Mm. And so when I think of white guilt, I think from a Christian lens, we're, we're, we're talking about godly grief that leads to repentance, a godly grief over racism, a godly grief over the reality of white supremacy that, um, yeah, you should feel bad. Like if we, <laughs> if we read the history, it's, mm. it's terrible. It's bad. It's, it's horrible. Um, it's worse than, than, than people think. It's ne- I can guarantee you that if you learn more about racism historically and in the present, you're not going to come away saying, oh, it's not as bad as I thought. <laughs> you're guaranteed going to come away with, oh, it's way worse than I ever imagined. Mm-hmm. And, and that should lead to, lead to a kind of grief. And the, and, the, and the godly grief is something that leads to repentance and says, I want to turn away from that. Um, heinous history and and even in the present, and I want to turn toward justice and righteousness. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I think the way that I have learned, I'm still learning, of course, uh, but when it's, I feel like some of my main teachers have been my own students mm-hmm. because there's such a tendency to use that white guilt, like you're trying to make me feel guilty. And so I've seen so many of my Black students never speak about the things that really are happening to them on a day-to-day basis or they're quiet in class unless you really give them the opportunity you know unless they feel safe and they provide and then when I start talking to them and I hear what happens I hear the things that they deal with every day Mm. every every black girl student female student I've talked to has been told you're pretty for a black girl Mm. (laughs) you know every black male that I've had as a student has been pulled over a ridiculous amount mm. of times, has been followed around Walmart are scared mm. to go out at night by themselves because they're getting the thing, but they don't talk about it because if they talk about it, they get accused, you know, of your exaggerate. There's a real distrust, mm. you know, of, of black brothers and sisters that when they, when they speak, you know, and I'm like, how hard is that just to, to, mm. to not even be able to talk about that. Mm. And so mm. that really did bring me to the place of, of a grief and an anger. Right. Like, you know, to, to, do you know, know what these students are really going and how I've stood on the side of the road, you know, next to my students when we were doing a protest thing and had somebody drive by and yell the N word at them and they just kind of shrug it off. But, mm-hmm. but then I'm sitting there thinking they, what else can they do? And, mm-hmm. you know, it just makes you, it, it's just to me, I'm, all I'm saying is that is what's taught me is to really hear those stories and also see how they've had to cope with that in a mm-hmm. way that's completely unfair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, because they're, they don't want to be called out. You're playing the race card. You know, mm-hmm. it's all about you're playing a victim, you know, all, all of that. So mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. I, I really like that that concept, Jamar, of that of godly grief. And Grief needs to acknowledge the reality of what's happened. You actually can't grieve it if you don't name it and you don't recognise it. Like that, that, so it's it's almost sort of, and that's what I think. What I'm hearing you saying, Mary, as well, is like I'm actually as I engage, I see it. I see it for what it is in a 
never as as much as your black brothers and sisters will see it and feel it and know it, but at least a tiny, tiny bit to then be able to to sort of name it and then as you like kind of this grief and repentance kind of but you can't you can't ignore it and expect that you will grieve it. Like you can't just expect that then you can you have some way to move forward. Um, so there, mm-hmm. it's that's yeah, that's really really. And helpful. we should be convicted that maybe even sins of omission. What have we not done? Right. You know, how totally. have we not helped? How mm-hmm. have we not been proactive? Or the times when we hurt someone even in, in, unintentionally because we didn't recognize our own biases. But then you start digging into history, like Jamar's book, mm-hmm. you know, or so many other aspects of history, and you think, whoa, mm-hmm. this is demonic. You know, it, it just is. And when we see it come up today, it's, it's mm-hmm. evil. It's evil mm-hmm. and it we is. have to fight. It's, it's, it's not just against flesh and blood, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I do have a question. You, Mary, talk about uh, being witnesses of the black experience, being witnesses of injustice. In, in like in, in Canadian case could be of, of the indigenous experience or in Bolivia the same indigenous experience. In Australia, it's what the is same the with the best? indigenous experience. Yeah. yeah, exactly, right? So what, what, what is the best way of, of doing that? Like me, just like a, just a regular guy, how can I be a witness of the black, in, in, your, in, in the case of the U.S., black experience, a witness to the in, injustice? Just use social media? Uh, I mean, people have been doing that, which is good, it's great, it's, you know, awareness and stuff. But uh, what would you guys say? What's the best way of being witnesses to, to, to injustice? Is this for... For... <laughs> Jamal, why don't you go, go ahead? Jamal, what, yeah. <laughs> well, I love your perspective, Mary, because you're, you're, you're on the front lines and, uh, and with students and young people are so often leading the way. And so one of the best way to, ways to be witnesses is to listen to our young people. Um, we were talking before we started the recording about the state flag of Mississippi coming down, which had the Confederate battle flag emblem on it. And it was the last state of all 50 to, to have that symbol on its flag. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of t- in, in the wake of that, there are going to be a lot of politicians and older folks who are in front of cameras and getting quoted in the media. Uh, but but so often the impetus for these these changes, whether, um, you know, material or symbolic, it's coming from young people, from high school students, from college students leading the way. And so as um, adults and older folks, we need to be humble enough to listen to, to young people and let them lead, even if it seems it, the hard part is, uh, you know, young people are, are, are a lot more, um, you know, aggressive on these things and a lot more uh, daring, if you will, because they're just in a different stage of life and that's the way it goes. And so that makes us more uncomfortable because it feels like we have more to lose, but we can actually learn a lot from their courage. Um, the other thing I'll say is in general, what, what I try to do is uh, lay out a, a holistic way of working toward racial justice. And so in um, the color of compromise, the last chapter I lay out, a model I've been working on called the arc of racial justice. And that stands for awareness, relationships, and commitment. And I think by focusing on all three of these areas, uh, then we can do a good job of being witnesses to racial justice. So awareness Mm -hmm. is building your knowledge about race, racism, white supremacy. It's not simply, it's not enough simply to exist, even as a black person or a person of color, there's some study that has to go into this. There's some knowledge building that has to occur. So that's podcasts like this, that's watching documentaries, that's reading books, that's all the typical stuff we would do to spread the word. 
Um, but we have to go beyond that and not just have big heads. We have to have big hearts. And that's the relationship aspect. So um, Christianity teaches us that all reconciliation is relational, that uh, when Jesus Christ reconciles a people to himself, he does that personally. He comes in uh, in the flesh to, to manifest on earth and build relationships uh, between human beings and God and also between human beings and one another. And so uh, you always have to put that flesh and blood on it. You always have to sort of push out of your comfort zone, especially in a society that is intentionally set up to be segregated by race and by class. And so we actually have to be intentional and go out of our way to to have those diverse friendships. The problem is, especially a lot of um, white Protestant Christians, a lot of white evangelicals, stop at the relationship aspect because that's mm-hmm. an individual interpersonal thing. Yeah. So they think, well, I've got friends of different races some of my best friends are black I'm doing fine I'm not racist mm-hmm. but I always say all the cups of coffee in the world uh, that you share with your black friend that's not going to do a thing about mass incarceration all of the pulpit swaps between the black church and the white church that's not going to close <laughs> the racial uh, wealth gap and so that's where the commitment aspect comes in we have to commit ourselves to anti-racist action on a policy level, uh, whether that's federal, state, local laws, whether that's the policies that are enacted in our institutions and our organizations, even Christian ones, even Mm -hmm. churches, that's where the sort of material, physical kind of change comes in beyond the symbolic and beyond the relational. So I think holding all those three in tension helps us have a more holistic approach to racial justice. Mm. Mary, do you want to say anything more about that? Um, I mean, it was great, wonderful what Jamar said. The only thing I would add about being witnesses, um, yeah, I, I think education, you know, I saw a meme or something the other day that said, you know, uh, white people are now waking up to racial injustice and then they're just going to form a book group. And that yeah. kind of b- bothered that. me yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I'm like, well, on one hand, if you stop at the book group, but I'm also seeing people kind of wanting to go out and let me make a black friend or let me do this and that. And they say things that are really hurtful because they're not educated yeah. and they don't really understand and they haven't spent time listening. Um, so I feel like we need a book group. In fact, I have a Thursday night book group with Jamar's book. So, (laughs) so, um, but, um, but I feel like, you know, we really need to educate ourselves. And I think that's our responsibility because I'm also aware that the black community, I'm just thinking about black community in America, they're exhausted. And Mm -hmm. I think they're pretty tired of having to explain over and over and over and over. And I think it's our turn to really maybe sacrifice something, you know, and really take the time to learn. Mm. Um, And I have seen, I've seen, this has been a really both hard, but also amazing time. I've seen so Mm. many, so many friends that never have really talked about this before are now like, what books should I read? What should I do? Like I have a real sense stirring and I need to repent I need mm-hmm. to learn. I need to do something. But I just would want that to, you know, and that's what, why we wanted to do this anti-racist group, particularly focusing on educating white people <laughs> because so that it would take a little bit of that burden off of, you know, uh, well, let me go ask, get my black friend to educate right. me. Right. Um, and, and I'm in an unusual context as a professor because students come to me and 
talk to me about things. You have that natural relationship, but it's probably hard when, you know, what if you're just at work and, you know, how do you not artificially go and befriend people that are different than you? Mm -hmm. But I think Mm -hmm. the first step is just listening and learning following people on social media, you know, reading books, going to events and going to places where you are going to be challenged and exposed to people who are different than you, Um, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. on a relational level, not just in a like, well, I'm going to go don't, I'm going to go do this charity thing for the poor black people Mm -hmm. in the neighborhood, you know, so like, it's actually on a peer level. And also, I feel like it's very important for me personally. I think it's important for white people to sit under black leadership, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to really mm. submit. And, you know, I have at my pastor's African-American. I remember the first time I saw him baptize a white baby mm. and I was like, so moved. Mm. And I just thought, this mm. is what heaven, you know, this is, yeah. <laughs> there's something really beautiful about like, like, you know, just thinking about the history of our country and yeah. uh, just the beauty of that moment. I don't know. I just think we, we need mm. to submit to black leadership a lot. Yeah. yeah. But like th- th- then we have the other side when we are, I mean, we are learning about who black people is in their place in society through pop culture. Right. <laughs> so like in my case, I, I come from Bolivia, right? Down south, Bolivia, and I, I do know I, I do know what a black people a black person is because of movies, right? Because of music, because of portrayal, and you know I always thought you know black people are the coolest, so my English tended to be black, and people would tell me like, "Hey, you have like a black accent." I was like, "Dang, so cool, thank you, man." And we don't have many black people in in, in Bolivia, but then when I came to the to the U.S. or the Canada, it, it was weird automatically, like. Everything I was taught about a black person, it just like, you know, it activated. And mm-hmm. I already like saw the black person's uh, place in, in their society. And I've never been to the U.S. before, like until that point. But I already had the that, that whole story in my head. So, so, that, so then you, you have that, that part of, okay, pop culture teaching us what a black person is and their, their place in society. So h- how do you... Deal with that because you know what? There's a lot of people talking about censorship and 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 uh, and people saying like you know freedom of speech and you know the arts and you shouldn't censor that and do you think censoring it's is the way to go or you know talk to me? So do you mean like censoring like uh, problematic Movies stereotypes? Or books or, yes, types or music that you know you shouldn't listen to that anymore because that person said this X Y Z or he made a, a racist comment so no more of his music or books or we don't watch his movies anymore because he did this and right I see yeah I do think um, well okay let me just give one example of something that's problematic that kind of had me all up in up in arms um, that so many people, it was so amazing to see people starting to really kind of wake up in America and start caring about these issues. And then the next minute we see the number one movie on Netflix. You know what I'm going to say, Jamar. The number one movie on Netflix is the help. And this really is very problematic. Harry. Because, <laughs> I mean, in a way... I thought you were going to say Black Panther or something. I was like, Oh, no. Well, that'd be good. Yeah. But the number one... But the help, it's like, you know, it's kind of like a, 
a, a civil rights chick flick. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> because it's all these groups of women, white women are going and it makes you, you kind of feel a little bad because it doesn't really show how bad things were in Jim Crow era, Mississippi. Isn't it Mississippi? Yep. Jackson, Mississippi. Jim Crow, Mississippi. There is one brief mention of a lynching, but the rest is like, oh, well, we're treated unfairly, but we're happy singing around the kitchen. It kind of reminds you of these slave portrayals that you would have in like early Disney films and Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. Um, And but then at the end, you know, things are are okay because of the white savior coming in and saving the day. So, of course, this is going to be the kind of film that actually perpetuates a lot of problematic, but people go in thinking, oh, this is why to me, I find it much more problematic when somebody speaks about race or racism and they, I don't know, I've, I've even been on panels before where it's like, let's talk about race and it'd be better for us not to talk at all than to perpetuate the same old stereotypes and ideals that make the people in the audience all feel comfortable at the end. Mm -hmm. Any real honest portrayal of like racism and these kinds of issues of Jim Crow era feeling really disrupted, really upset. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would love to have seen, you know, the number one, I don't know, the number one film be do the right thing by Spike Lee or, (laughs) or, I don't know, one of Barry Jenkins' films. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so I just think that this is actually incredibly dangerous because then it reinforces, it makes us feel comfortable. It's, um, it, you know, because it tells us how to feel and it tells us that we should feel okay because this this was bad, but, you know, it got taken care of and now it's over and it really almost lends leads to the idea of a post-racial society, um, which is a myth. So, so that's just one idea. So I think that what we should do is, yeah, not watch those, not give our money to that. Like let's make a better, or, or even on our things like our social media pages or what we choose to write about, what we choose to talk our friends about with, what we choose to do film discussion groups. There are many ways that we can influence a large group of people um, in these sorts of discussions and even pointing out what is problematic mm-hmm. in what is popular. Like mm-hmm. this, this is what's problematic. So um, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Mary. Jamar, what do you you think? Yeah, I agree with uh, everything Mary said. And um, Octavio, I think what you're getting at is uh, an important idea that that white supremacy is a global affair. Uh, It's certainly not confined to one country. Uh, It's not even confined to one group. The the simple matter is that, that all racial and ethnic groups are swept up in the tide of white supremacy and experience different disadvantages uh, uh, based on that relative to to where they sort of fit in the social hierarchy. So one of the things to do about that is we need a diversity of people who are creating these these cultural artifacts, uh, Mm -hmm. whether that be movies or music or books, um, which gets to access, which gets to systemic issues of racism, right? Um, The other thing that white supremacy does is it flattens out the diversity that's within groups. And so you come away with this impression of a monolithic black community. 
And the reality is mm. we are as varied and diverse as any other people group. There are some mm. people who are politically conservative, some people who are politically liberal. There are some people who love rap music. There are some people who love country music. There are some people who are great at sports and dancing. There are other people who are as awkward and clumsy as can be. And we need to have space Is that true? I don't believe that, that. that last one can be true. <laughs> the dancing one can't be true. It, it's absolutely true. I am a witness. Um, it's not me, but it, no, yeah. it is. It is <laughs> Other people. It, has yeah, it, it is you. Come on, man. Um, some people can play basketball and some black people can't. And I can definitely attest mm. to that. Um, but these are the stereotypes, right? And and what the stereotypes mm. do is they flatten out all diversity, which is which is really flattening out the image of God in all people, because um, that diversity and, and, and the complementarity and the interlocking nature of people's different strengths and weaknesses, that can be a beautiful tapestry, but we'd never get to that part because we have these very shallow two-dimensional yeah. um, impressions of, of what an entire racial group or cultural group is. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the the model minority with Asians. Yep. You Mm -hmm. know, like the assumption, just these assumptions that can really, and many people think that those would consider those stereotypes are actually compliments, but they're not because they are, but a lot of people still think that they are compliments though and use them. Yeah. You know, so, but, 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 but it's, yeah, they're not. So I, th- I this is um so good I think for us as Christians to be to be engaging in sort of these conversations particularly around popular culture I mean lots of Christians are are doing you know kind of thoughtful things but sometimes we're a little bit like oh don't you know avoid popular culture which is not helpful but um but can you do, do you want to sort of talk a little bit of sort of just as we kind of wrap up how so to those kind of who are outside the North American context, um, what are some kind of what are some ways that, that are helpful f- sort of for us to engage? I think there are some things, Gemma, you were talking about sort of policy sort of level dis- things and and, th- and even your awareness, relationship, commitment. I think those things kind of cross um, the kind of North American kind of international kind of border. Um, what, what about that? And what is what should the black church and the white church and the indigenous church and the and the and the, the Chinese church, like what 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 should us as as the unified and very diverse people of God, sort of talking what you're thinking about? How do we? What what are some sort of thoughts for us, kind of moving moving forward? So, from an international perspective. Um I can think of a few things. Number one, the the protests that, that are happening around the world in solidarity with what's going on in the U.S., that's really powerful because then we in the U.S. can say, no, th- th- this is not just black people in the U.S. who have a chip on their shoulder. Worldwide, people see the injustice here. And, um, you know, because of our economic power, because of our cultural power, a lot of eyes are on us, and this is this is an embarrassment for a nation that calls itself a democracy, and there are other people around the world who see it too. Along those same lines, I think when organizations like the UN get involved in terms of you know investigating uh, anti-black police brutality, uh, calling for um, changes or even sanctions, like that's legitimate. Mm-hmm. If if some of the things that are happening here to black people and other people of country, if we were to see them happening abroad, we would unequivocally condemn it as a nation. But yeah. because it's happening here, you know, hands off, you, you, you can't criticize. But when we see the international community coming together and saying these are human rights abuses, that's really powerful. Mm. Uh, so keep doing that. Um, in addition, I think 
every every nation, every society has a group that has been historically marginalized and oppressed. And so um, I think we can learn from each other. And so there's a lot of talk now in 2020 about a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the U.S. church, right? And so we're learning from Sierra Leone, South America, uh, even even Germany in the wake of, of uh, Nazi Germany. And so um, we have much to learn from the international community. I think the international community can, can learn from some things in the U.S., mostly what not to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> things to avoid. Uh, but, but we can help each other in those freedom struggles and every nation, every society has a group that's been engaged in a long term freedom struggle Mm -hmm. that we need to get around. And lastly, I'll say the, the inter-ethnic solidarity I think is extremely powerful. So, um, shout out to the Asian American Christian collaborative, which is a new group that formed just a few months ago at the beginning of 2020 in light of the increasing anti-Asian racism because people using slurs about the virus and where it came from and -hmm. trying to sort of pin it on any Asian person in the U.S. So uh, it formed because of that, but they, from the start, have been about solidarity with other marginalized groups, particularly black people. And so just recently they held a march in Chicago that had over a thousand people. It was with Asian churches and black churches, and it was just an extremely powerful moment of solidarity. And one of their phrases was, you know, we're not going to remain silent anymore. Uh, because different racial and ethnic groups have different places in the social hierarchy. Uh, Mary mentioned the model minority myth, um, which is very damaging in its own way. But um, it, it, it has also led to, you know, a silence or a passivity or an apathy on the part of other ethnic groups. So they came out and they marched in solidarity with black people. And I think when that happens, I honestly believe a 21st century civil rights movement is going to be a multiracial, multi-ethnic coalition. It's still going to be strongly rooted in the church or at least the Christian tradition um, as having this sort of transcendent sense of morality and justice. And it's going to be prominently led by women. Uh, I think that's the that's the growth mm. from what we saw in the 50s and 60s. Mm. Wow. Mm. Bring that on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here for it, definitely. Jamar, can I ask you a personal question? Are you tired? Yes, I'm very yeah. tired. Yeah. Um, it's it's a whirlwind, you know. This this has been a sustained wave of protests, which is something that that is a bit different than in times past. I mean, it's been at least over a month um, that mm-hmm. that there've been uprisings and marches and demands. So you know, you're sort of always on uh, when you're in racial justice work, and this is happening. And then, um, you know, the, the bit of good news is, is my first book, The Color of Compromise, it's experienced sort of a renaissance as, as people are wanting to build their awareness. And so um, it became a New York Times bestseller, which is great, but it so also awesome. comes Congratulations. with a lot more work and a lot more um, people drawing on, on you, which again, attests to uh, the, the, the hunger of a lot of people to want to do something mm-hmm. different this time. Um, so yeah, it's it's been it's been tiring. I'm planning to to unplug and take some time off soon, but uh, stuff yeah. keeps happening. Yeah. Mm. Uh, have you been out protesting? We have. Now I live in a, a little rural area in the uh, 
on the Arkansas side of the Mississippi Delta. So there's not a whole lot of action like in bigger cities, but we even had a, a protest and a march. And I'm trying to shepherd my church, which is um, has not had a whole lot of direct teaching about race and justice uh, through that, through sermons and and studies and all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a 360 degree effort here um, to, to promote racial justice. But, you know, uh, when I get tired, I, I, I look to the ancestors and I look to some of my heroes like Fannie Lou Hamer and uh, knowing that she uh, dedicated her the latter half of her life she was in her 40s when she got involved in the black freedom struggle publicly and um died pretty much an early death due to all of the conditions around poverty in the delta but also a severe beating she endured in the early 60s and um her tenacity and her faith um it's it's like it's like in the book of hebrews when it just lists all of these saints who persevered to the end. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we have a hall of faith here too when it comes to um, mm. Christians who are fighting for uh, black freedom and for racial justice. And that inspires me. Well, Jamar, thanks. And, and Mary, thanks so much for your time. Mm-hmm. And particularly in what's a, uh, a crazy understatement uh, period of time for you, just time-wise and energy-wise. So we really yeah. appreciate your time. Well, I loved Thank meeting you, you both. Thank you. Great questions and a fun discussion. Yeah, indeed. Until next time. But have a have a good rest, Jamar. Yeah. I appreciate that. Jamar, yeah, really. and, uh, well, I'm not as exhausted as he is. <laughs> I'm, not a New, I'm not a New York Times bestseller. That's right. right. Yeah. Not yet, Mary. Not yet. Right. Not yet. <laughs> All right. Great Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.